Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court with David Cole, National Legal Director of the ACLU and the nation's national legal correspondent, He has 10 questions for Brett Kavanaugh. Also, Jimmy Carter in many ways was the opposite of Donald Trump. He promoted human rights around the world. He granted amnesty to Vietnam-era drafter sisters. We'll talk about Jimmy Carter with Michael Kazin. But first, Trump's worst week was last week. Maybe you remember his press conference in Helsinki with Vladimir Putin, then his feeble efforts at damage control on Tuesday and Wednesday, and then how he doubled down and invited Putin to meet in Washington, then how he tweeted Sunday night that the investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 election was, quote, all a big hoax, close quote. How much has all of this hurt him with the public, with the voters, with the Republicans? For that, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's the nation's national affairs correspondent and a CNN political contributor. She's also the author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? Finding Our Way in the Next America. The Philadelphia Daily News called it, quote, one of the best books of the year and even more relevant now. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, I'm a little confused about what Trump wouldn't not think about Russian interference in our elections past and future. Where do we stand at this hour? We're taping on Tuesday afternoon. Does he or doesn't he? I think he is determined to deny it. And and I think that every once in a while he is forced into a corner and forced to say, oh, I acknowledge it. I know that our intelligence community is, is unanimous on it. And then within hours, not even days, but hours, he'll, he'll send out a tweet saying he doesn't believe in it or, uh, and, and calling the Mueller investigation a witch hunt to something that, that didn't occur. So when I wrote my piece at the end of last week, John, I really felt like maybe, maybe, maybe we were starting to see things turn because the level of Republican language about the president, you know, had really taken a turn. It it had really gotten heated. Jeff Flake all but called him a traitor, said he gave aid aid and comfort to the enemy uh, in in the case of, of Putin. Representative Will Hurd of Texas, a former CIA officer himself, came out with an op-ed saying that he believed that Putin had something on Donald Trump and and raising alarms about that. We also saw that weird spectacle of uh, Director of National Intelligence Dan Coates on stage at the Aspen Security Forum being interviewed by Andrea Mitchell 
and being very blunt about first of all yes the russians absolutely did interfere in their prop and they're and they're trying in 2018 that he would never have recommended a, a one-on-one between putin and trump without any advisors and that he still didn't know and that was four days later what had transpired at the helsinki summit uh and you know the to, to top it all off uh, Andrea Mitchell learned while they were on stage that Sarah Huckabee Sanders had just tweeted that they were making preparations to invite Vladimir Putin here to this country in the fall. And the director of national intelligence knew nothing about it and made clear, did not even try to hide his his shock and his being left out of the loop. So, you know, I had a little bit of, of hope going into the weekend. But very quickly after I wrote the piece, things started to shift. And meanwhile, on Tuesday, Trump had this bizarre tweet saying he believed the Russians would interfere in the November 2018 elections, supporting the Democrats, he said, because Trump has been so hard on the Russians. The Russians, quote, don't want Trump. I thought Vladimir Putin said he did want Trump. Have I got this wrong? No, you've got it exactly right. Vladimir Putin absolutely said that standing next to Trump in Helsinki last Monday. Uh, he, he came out and confirmed that he preferred Donald Trump. We, we have polls showing an even bigger advantage, a generic advantage for Democrats in the midterm elections. It obviously varies state to state, but it, it's a bigger margin. So it's about a 10 to 12 point divide in the generic ballot, Democrat versus Republican, who do you want? Uh, much bigger than, than Hillary Clinton's lead toward the end of the, the 2016 race. Well, let's talk a little bit more about those polls. Of course, people who are not Republicans would not approve of Trump agreeing with everything Putin said. I was disturbed, though, to see what Republicans have been telling the pollsters. There was that Washington Post ABC new poll conducted after the Trump-Putin summit. I'll just read the question. At a news conference with Putin, Trump expressed doubts about U.S. intelligence conclusions that the Russian government tried to influence the outcome of the 2016 U.S. presidential elections. And then the pollster asked whether respondents approved or disapproved of Trump having done so. 51% of Republicans said they approved, 28% strongly. What do you think about 51% of Republicans saying they approve of Trump's conduct with Putin? I think it's alarming. I think that what what we've seen with Donald Trump is that his supporters very quickly wind up believing in what he tells them about the the world. And so, for example, our NATO allies, our NATO coalition is no longer popular with Republican voters. It used to be very popular. They used to dislike Putin. Now they like Putin. That's one of the most dangerous things about Trumpism, John, is that he's really able to reshape reality for his admirers. The, The people who don't like what he did in Helsinki don't dislike it enough to have to change their <laughs> overall opinion on whether Trump's doing a good job. It's we're, just we're not... getting here. We're getting here into the famous double negative territory. They... That's right. <laughs> they don't not like it. Yeah, exactly. They're okay with it. Basically, they still give him. You know, eighty-eight percent still say they approve of the job he's doing, even if only fifty percent of them are saying, "Yeah, he did great in Helsinki too." So does that explain why 
so many Republicans in Congress have been unwilling to criticize Trump, even for contradicting his own uh, experts and appointees on national intelligence? I, I think it does. I, th- I think that they are they know that it is now his party. They are afraid of, of, you know, seriously going up against him and therefore going up against his voters. They don't want to be called out uh, by the president publicly. And so as long as his approval rating is hovering around 90 percent among Republican voters, he's, he's probably going to, you know, hold on to a lot of elected leaders' support. I mean, I really do think that if the midterms turn out to be uh, a disaster for Republicans, that could change very quickly. But for now, they seem to be sticking with them going into November. Well, let's talk about November in a minute. But first, I want to ask you a little bit more about Trump and Putin. Of course, Trump has never said a single critical word about Putin even when he's cornered, even when there are demands across the political spectrum that he recant or revise, he will say Russia meddled in the elections. He would never say Putin did. People are asking, how can we explain Trump's submissiveness to Putin? Does Putin have something on Trump? What do you think? I think it's inescapable that he has something on him. Now, I don't know what it is. The most likely thing that he has to me would be evidence of some kind of financial impropriety, evidence of huge amounts of of Russian money going into his businesses, evidence that he was perhaps money laundering for some of the, you know, for the Russian oligarchs. So there's just a tremendous history of people paying cash for tower buildings and other Trump properties, Russians, uh, let me say, paying cash which raises certain alarm bells when you see cash trans- transactions of that magnitude. Somebody bought uh, uh, one of his Florida mansions for, I think, you know, roughly double what Trump had paid a few years earlier, again in cash. So that seems to me the most likely, the most likely thing they have on him, uh, and it could go back years. There's also talk, the, the so-called steel dossier, talked about some uh, unappe- unappealing sexual acts. I don't know. I'm, I'm agnostic on that one. I don't know how much could really embarrass this man sexually since, you know, by his own admission, he's a, he's a sexual uh, abuser. There could also be much more clear evidence of collusion, even though he always tells us there's no collusion, that, that there, you know, that there were high, high-ranking officials connecting around the Russians providing help to Trump during the campaign. It's one of those three or four things, or maybe all four things, maybe some sex, some kinky sex too. We need to talk about November just to review where we stand to gain control of Congress. Democrats need to flip right now. It's 23 seats in the house in the Senate. They need to defend three or four or five endangered seats and take two more. Yeah, there's, away five, from- there's five where there's five that democratic held Senate seats in, uh, in states that Trump won. And then there's another five that there are places where Clinton only won narrowly. So, you know, we went into the year thinking that there were roughly 10, very vulnerable Democratic senators. But for now, you know, they have not been fielding excellent candidates. I don't think, for example, Joe Manchin of West Virginia is in as much trouble as people expected him to be, or perhaps any trouble at all. I mean, it's still a little too early to say that. 
Tammy Baldwin in, in Wisconsin is running a pretty good race. Claire McCaskill in Missouri does have a, a significant challenger, but the, the whole Republican Party has been tainted by the scandal of their creepy governor, uh, Greitens, who had to resign after uh, allegations that he used sexual blackmail with a former mistress. With, with Jeff Flake retiring, Democrats could pick up Arizona. Dean Heller is, a, is the most vulnerable uh, Republican on most lists right now. He's got a really great challenger in Jackie Rosen. Uh, in Nevada. Nevada. In Nevada. In Nevada. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I'm not going to predict uh, a pickup, I'm not, and I'm not going to predict that they, that they protect all 10 seats, but it's not impossible. It's not as hard as it looked six months ago. And it seems like even if the Republican base stays loyal to what is now Trump's party, this latest disaster for Trump with Putin will certainly energize Democratic candidates, Democratic funders, and Democratic voters. And the Democrats' big problem in midterms has always been turnout. I I think that turnout is going to be much better for Democrats. Do you think I'm being too optimistic? I don't think you're being too optimistic. I think it's going to take a lot of work. I don't think we can count on it. We've seen some good signs. Special elections over the last 18 months, 20 months, we've seen some really important Democratic pickups. You need massive turnout on a pretty broad scale, and that takes a lot of work. Um, but, you know, we're, 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 hearing, we're hearing good things from the activist groups that sprang up in the, in the wake of the Trump election. People have really stayed involved. Joan Walsh, reader at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Always great to have you on the show. Good to be back, John. Take care. Now it's time to talk about Brett Kavanaugh, Trump's nominee to fill the Supreme Court seat vacated by the swing vote Anthony Kennedy. Today's topic, what should Democrats on the Judiciary Committee ask Kavanaugh in his confirmation hearings? For that, we turn to David Cole. He's National Legal Director of the ACLU and Legal Affairs Correspondent for the Nation. His most recent book is Engines of Liberty, How Citizen Movements Succeed. David, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, let's clarify at the outset, what is the ACLU policy on endorsement of Supreme Court nominees? So we are a a nonpartisan organization, as you know, and we have a policy of not endorsing or opposing um, nominees or uh, candidates for government office, uh, and that includes the Supreme Court. So we're neutral uh, on the on the uh, appointment of Justice Kavanaugh. We're going to talk to you about the confirmation hearings when people nominated for seats on the Supreme Court appear before the Senate Judiciary Committee. They almost always say that they cannot answer questions about current legal issues that might come before the court which are, of course, all the issues that we care about. What exactly is the typical argument they make to justify not answering? Well, they generally say, uh, I, you want a judge with an open mind. Uh, I want, uh, I, you know, when this case comes before me, uh, I want to have an open mind. If I commit myself now to a position, then that will preclude me from having an open mind when the case comes before me, and I ought not decide how the case should come out until I've actually had briefing from both sides and considered it carefully uh, rather than in response to a question from a member of the Senate 
Judiciary Committee. And you think there are questions that Brett Kavanaugh must answer. Before we get into the specifics of those questions, what is your rationale here? How do you distinguish between uh, a question that, that really ought to be answered and questions that are not appropriate? You know, I don't think it's appropriate to ask uh, how you're going to rule in a particular case, and I, I think it's 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 reasonable for the for a, a, a potential justice to to not answer that kind of a question for the reasons I articulated. But you know, these are these are people, uh, and Brett Kavanaugh is one, and generally who have uh, spoken publicly on a wide variety of issues about their views um, and uh, have. You know, not limited themselves to the 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 words in their written opinions, and so I think you can ask them questions that go to their um, understandings of basic constitutional uh, principles and and, and rights uh, without asking them to decide how they would rule in a specific case. So, for example, you know, I don't think it's appropriate to say, will you affirm or overturn Roe versus Wade? But I think you can ask, do you agree that the Constitution protects a fundamental right of liberty of all persons to make personal decisions about their bodies and their families. Uh, and that, you know, that includes things like the right to choose how your child is educated, the right to choose whether to use contraception or not, the right to to marry on equal terms if you're straight or, or, or not, and the, the right to abortion. And in fact, Roe v. Wade right now has massive public support. There's a new poll from NBC News and the Wall Street Journal has found that 71% of American voters believe that the decision which established a woman's legal right to an abortion should not be overturned. Just 23% say the ruling should be reversed. That's the highest level of support for Roe v. Wade and the lowest share of voters who want it overturned in the, in the history of polling. So this is... For the Democrats uh, and the opponents of Kavanaugh, a key political issue that they will mobilize opposition to him around. And you think there is a way to ask him about this. There, can't we also ask him about his recent rulings about one abortion case involving a person in immigration detention? Tell us about that one. No, oh, absolutely. So, yeah. And, you know, I, I think on, on, the, uh, on this, the remarkable uh, support for Roe, I think what you're seeing there is the Trump effect. He, he has threatened to take it away. And because he's threatened to take away something that has been so central to uh, so many people's lives, people have come forward and, you know, and are, are newly valuing it uh, in ways that I think they may have just sort of taken for granted for a long time. Um, so Brett Kavanaugh on, on Roe versus Wade, I think he hasn't decided many cases, but he did decide one case, a case that we brought, uh, the ACLU, on behalf of an, un, uh, of an undocumented minor who was in federal custody in Texas, uh, learned that she was pregnant, uh, sought to obtain an abortion, went through all the steps you need to go through as a minor in Texas to get an abortion. And then the the uh, head of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which oversees the federal custody of, of immigrant minors uh, and is a uh, adamantly pro-life guy, 
uh, vetoed her decision and said, no, I'm not going to facilitate you getting an abortion. Uh, and what he meant by that is I'm not going to open the door of the facility in which you are being held in custody to allow you to go out for medical treatment that is your constitutional right. And we sued, uh, and the courts, the, the district court ruled that indeed she had a right to uh, have that abortion, and the government has no right to keep her locked up to deny her medical treatment. Um, and the government appealed to the D.C. Circuit, and Judge Kavanaugh was on the panel that heard that appeal, uh, and he uh, ruled that um, the government could have an, an extra, at that point, uh, I think 11 days to try to find a sponsor for the girl so that she could be taken out of federal custody, at which point they wouldn't have anything to do with the uh, abortion. And that was then overturned over the weekend by the D.C. Circuit, uh, the full panel of the D.C. Circuit. So in that case, he did not, he, he voted against the uh, the right of the woman. He did, you know, he didn't say she could not have an abortion at all. He said that the government should be given some more time before she uh, gets her abortion, but she'd already been delayed for about a month in terms of getting the abortion. And the longer you go, the more uh, risky it is. And at some point it becomes illegal to have an abortion. Well, for Democrats organizing the opposition to Kavanaugh, his position on abortion rights and Roe v. Wade is the number one question, but it's not the number quest number one question on your list of questions that Democrats should ask Kavanaugh. What's your number one? So my number one is really is, is whether he is someone who believes in an evolving constitution or whether he is somebody who is committed to the constitution as it was understood by the the dead white men who wrote it uh, 200 plus years ago. Uh, and if you look at the history of Supreme Court justices in this country, virtually all of them have believed in an evolving constitution. That is, we start with the constitution as it was written 200 plus years ago, but we recognize that the country has changed over time, and we recognize that the constitution was written in broad terms precisely so that it could evolve with the times. And it's through judicial interpretation and specifically by the Supreme Court, that that happens. But there are a handful of justices who take a very different view, this this originalist view that we are stuck with whatever the folks back then, 200-plus years ago, thought. So it's a very small minority of justices over the course of history who have taken that view, but unfortunately there are a number of them on the court today. Um, uh, Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch are both originalists. Uh, Justice Alito is sometimes an originalist. Um, and that's disturbing because, you know, if you take an originalist understanding of the Constitution, if you believe it doesn't evolve at the times, then segregation uh, would be legal because it was legal at the time that the 14th Amendment was adopted. And there was very little evidence that the, the framers of the 14th Amendment intended to, to undo segregation. Women's protection under the Equal Protection Clause, they were not Laws that treated women differently from men were not seen as violating the Equal Protection Clause until the 1970s, when, because of feminism, because of the women's movement, because of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the ACLU, the court finally came around to recognizing the Equal Protection Clause protects women. Marriage equality, obviously, was not protected by the Constitution until 2015. So if you believe in an originalist understanding of the Constitution, then you throw a lot of rights that we today consider very fundamental to who we are as Americans under the bus. 
The next big issue for Kavanaugh, in my opinion, concerns the possibility that the court might be asked to review charges or proceedings of some kind against Donald Trump. We remember the case of United States versus Nixon, the landmark Supreme Court case from 1974, a unanimous decision against President Nixon ordering him to deliver tape recordings and other subpoenaed materials to a federal district court. In the past, Kavanaugh has suggested that the court came to the wrong conclusion in United States versus Nixon. What do you think Democrats could ask him about U.S. versus Nixon and about the possibility that United States versus Trump might come before the court? Well, I think there's, there are lots they can and should ask him on that question because, you know, it's absolutely a, 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 real, a real possibility that one of these matters will come uh, before the court and that he might well be the decisive vote. Um, and I think the first one is he's been given the, this plum assignment by President Donald Trump. Is he, will he recuse himself uh, if Donald Trump himself is, uh, uh, is, a, is at issue? The second, I think, is to, 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 ask, him to, to ask about this, this case, the U.S. versus Nixon case, and what is his justification for saying that a, a decision that was unanimously handed down by a court that had many conservative Republicans on it, uh, as well as liberal uh, liberals and Democrats on it. You know what what was wrong about it, and what is the role? What is the proper role of the court in uh, checks and balances, and assuring that the executive branch of the government does not run amok? Uh, and he has written some pieces that. Uh, suggest, and these are his views, so I think he can be asked about it, suggest that in his view, uh, both civil and criminal uh, cases should not proceed against the president at all uh, while he is president because they are too distracting. Well, you know, we have a criminal investigation against the president right now. There are a number of civil cases uh, going on against the president. And there, there certainly are considerations that the president needs to be able to focus on his job. But there's also consider the number one consideration is that no one is above the law. And uh, if you if you take the courts out of checking executive power, uh, that's a that's a very very dangerous uh, scenario, particularly when you've got a president like this in office. If Kavanaugh refuses to answer these questions. What choices do the Democrats on the Judiciary Committee have? I think they need to essentially cross-examine him and really put him on the spot and and, and, and require him to give meaningful answers. Um, if he doesn't give meaningful answers, then you know it's their their choice as to whether they think they have sufficient information to to vote to confirm him or to vote to oppose him. And they that well, all they have are their votes. Um, uh, they can vote yay or nay. And at the end of the day, there are, you know, it's it's essentially a 50 to 49 Senate right now. So if all the Republicans vote in his favor and all the Democrats vote against him, he will be confirmed. And so there, there's not a lot that a, that a Democrat can do uh, unless a Republican, you know, is willing to oppose the uh, the nominee. David Cole wrote about 10 questions Brett Kavanaugh must answer for the New York Review Daily. He's National Legal Director of the ACLU and Legal Affairs Correspondent for The Nation. Thank you, David. It's been great having you on the show today. Thanks for having me, John. Now we want to talk about Jimmy Carter. 
course, he was elected president in 1976 after Nixon resigned and was pardoned by his successor, Gerald Ford. In many ways, Carter was the complete opposite of Donald Trump. His campaign funding came not from big donors or corporations, but almost completely from public funds provided by the millions of Americans who checked a donation box on their tax returns. Jimmy Carter promoted human rights around the world. He granted amnesty to Vietnam-era draft resistors. He sought to conserve energy and protect wilderness areas. He was a dedicated opponent of racism. He enforced the Voting Rights Act. He named many African Americans to high positions in his administration. No president before Jimmy Carter had appointed more women as cabinet secretaries or judges. There was only one woman who sat on a federal court when Jimmy Carter entered the White House. By the time he left, he had appointed 40 more, including one named Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And yet Jimmy Carter is regarded almost universally as a failure as president, and not just because he lost his reelection campaign to Ronald Reagan. For comment, we turn to Michael Kazin. He's the editor of Dissent Magazine and a contributor to the nation. He also teaches history at Georgetown University. His most recent book is War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914 to 1918. Michael Kazin, welcome to the program. Oh, great to be here, John. Well, you wrote in The Nation that Jimmy Carter as president was unlucky. Usually historians on the left have a more theoretical uh, explanation. What, what do you mean unlucky? Well, you know, contingency <laughs> uh, really matters in history. And he took over in the late 1970s when the economy had been racked by stagflation for a couple of years. Uh, there had been a terrible recession, which began in 1973, and the recession was over, but there's still very high unemployment and high inflation at the same time. The Vietnam War had only ended just a year, a little more than a year earlier before he'd been elected, and that was still hanging over the country. There's still bitter divisions about that. Uh, the Democrats were badly divided. There used to be a lot of Southern Democrats, but they didn't like uh, pro-Union Democrats in the North. And I think there was also coming out of the 60s and early 70s a, a sense that big government was the problem, not the solution. And various politicians like Ronald Reagan were beginning to use terms just like that. So Jimmy Carter becomes president uh, at a time when most things were going to be going against him. What he had going for him was the Democrats still had a majority in both halves of Congress. And so it seemed as if he could get some bills passed he wanted passed. So Democrats controlled both houses of Congress great opportunity. We miss those days terribly. But you say he was a, a complete failure as a politician. What do you mean? He did get elected president. He got elected president. However, he was ahead in the polls over Gerald Ford, the incumbent, by something like 30 points at the beginning of the campaign. And he barely eked out a win. But, you know, he was one of these politicians. Uh, Barack Obama, to a certain degree, it was like this, but not as bad, who believed that uh, his policies were going to be good, be good politics, that, that all he had to do was lay out sensible policies that were going to be good for the American people, and ideology, uh, partisan differences, interest groups, all that would be put aside, uh, and Americans would just flock to agree with him. And that's not how politics works. Also, he was, he was not a party builder. I'm writing a history of the Democratic Party right now, and I'm really interested in in Democrats, whatever their ideology and politics, who know how to build a party, know how to build an organization, know how to sustain an organization. And he uh, had never really done that, uh, even as governor of Georgia, when the Democrats were had a huge majority there. He didn't really need to build much of a party. But 
in a more competitive situation as we had in the late 1970s between the two parties, he wasn't just bad at doing that. He wasn't even interested in doing it. And that was a real failure. Well, let me just defend Jimmy Carter here for a minute. At least in the 1976 primaries, he did something remarkable and something for which we should be honoring him today has been completely forgotten. The big challenge for the Democrats in 1976 was not to pick the candidate who could beat Gerald Ford. As you say, Ford's poll ratings were were terrible. The big challenge for the Democrats in the 1976 primaries was who could beat George Wallace, the former governor of Alabama, who was the personification of Southern white racism, who was running that year in the Democratic primaries and who had had frightening success in recruiting the the white working class, especially in the South, to racist politics in the three previous elections in, in 68 George Wallace ran as a third-party candidate, ended up with 10 million votes, 14% of the total, 45 electoral votes in five deep South states. He won more than any third-party candidate in the last century that year. And when he ran against Jimmy Carter in the Democratic primaries, he still had that history behind him. There were 10 Democrats running in 76, and Wallace did pretty well in the first primaries, including primaries in the North in Massachusetts. And Florida was really going to be the testing ground because Jimmy Carter was a Southern white running as a populist, sort of a progressive type of populist, uh, running against this racist former governor from the state, one state over. And Carter beat George Wallace in Florida, 35 to 31. This was... 10 points less for Wallace than he'd won in Florida four years earlier. And then Jimmy Carter went on to beat George Wallace in the next two primaries. In fact, Jimmy Carter was the last Democrat, I think, to bring Southern white workers into an electoral alliance with black voters. Certainly it's true. He did knock off Wallace and and other other Democrats uh, were very thankful to him for doing that. And that probably helped him uh, get the nomination and helped him win Northern votes in later primaries. But well, Bill Clinton, you know, did uh, yeah. put together something of an alliance between white working class and black working class people in the South, in the general election especially. But he certainly is the last Democrat to do that. So it's a real problem for the Democrats, obviously. Uh, the Democrats have become as much of a northern-based party as the uh, Republicans uh, used to be after the Civil War. I do think, however, that there's a possibility of of Democrats putting together a coalition in a lot of the southern states, especially ones like Georgia and, and Texas and Florida, of younger people from all races, black and Latino working class people. And we'll see whether that proves to be a, a winning strategy in Georgia, where a very good black candidate, Stacey Abrams, is running for governor is right now about two points behind uh, the leading Republican candidate. Well, some of our friends on the left say Jimmy Carter was our best president because he's the only one who did not send American troops into combat overseas. We had four years without war under Jimmy Carter. What do you think of that argument? Well, Bill Clinton didn't you know, send Americans into any prolonged conflict uh, either. And, of course, Barack Obama tried to pull troops out of the conflicts that the uh, U.S. Uh, was in. So I think, you know, that's one criterion. And certainly after just taking power 
uh, less than two years after the uh, U.S. Uh, had lost uh, finally the war in, in, in Vietnam, it would have been almost impossible for him to send troops in. And of course, he did, some would argue, help to restart the Cold War, at least uh, uh, a revived Cold War after the Soviets uh, invaded Afghanistan to prop up their client government in Afghanistan. And he was responsible for uh, making relations with uh, the new Iranian government uh, under Khomeini uh, much, much worse than they otherwise, I think, would have been. That's um, a very nice way of, of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Carter, we might say, provoked the Iranian hostage crisis, which has yes, destroyed yes. American relations with Iran ever since. Remind us how that happened. Was he just unlucky in that situation? Well, again, he was unlucky as well as... Uh, clumsy uh, and and stupid in the policy he followed. Uh, very quickly, uh, the Shah of Iran had been put back into power by the Iranian army with the active help of the CIA in 1953, overthrowing a elected president named uh, Mossadegh, Mohammad Mossadegh. And the um, you know theocrats under Khomeini were sort of national heroes, because the Shah was such a modernizing secular figure very close to the United States. And so it was inevitable that once uh, the Shah was overthrown, that the new Iranian government was not going to be all that friendly to the United States. However, Carter made it worse by inviting the Shah to come to the United States for cancer treatment. He was very sick, and he actually ended up dying in the United States. And and this sort of further inflamed the feelings, especially young Iranian revolutionaries who took over the American embassy, uh, held diplomats and other American citizens hostage for, uh, if I remember correctly, close to a year. And, and this became really uh, the last major foreign policy act of Carter's administration, which really overshadowed everything else he did uh, abroad, including some you know, things worth praise, like uh, helping to broker a peace treaty between Israel and Egypt. And uh, it also made it almost impossible, I think, for him to have a chance to win a re-election. One of the biggest issues of Carter's presidency came when Ted Kennedy proposed a kind of national health uh, plan long before Obamacare. What what happened with that? Well, Kennedy wanted a plan which would be uh, very close to Medicare for all, a little bit different, but uh, pretty close to that. And and there was a huge amount of support among liberal Democrats and pro-union Democrats for such a plan. But Carter, as a Southern Democrat was afraid of too much federal power. Uh, he believed at a time of, uh, of uh, looming budget deficits that uh, the country couldn't take on another big entitlement program. And so he opposed it. He, he didn't oppose it outright, but he tried to work out a less expensive, less uh, sweeping program. Kennedy thought that he'd been betrayed. He thought Carter had actually agreed to support his program. And this is one of the things which uh, convinced Kennedy to run against Carter for the 1980 nomination. And that's always a very bad sign for incumbent president when he has a major rival for the nomination. Michael Kazin wrote about Jimmy Carter. You can read it at thenation.com. Michael, thanks so much for talking with us today. Uh, happy to do it. Finally, the NBA and mental health of players. That's the topic of this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine sports editor. Dave will be talking about the suicide of former Sacramento Kings player Tyler Honeycutt following a shootout with police at his home in L.A. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday. 
at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.